joining us. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We live today in a world of instant communication. Our computers and things like Skype allow us to travel to any place on Earth at the speed of light. We have seen the surface of the moon and of Mars, and we've all been in meetings with participants all over the world. So what this should tell us is that any place is every place, that things like geography, place, and indigenous culture doesn't matter in the 21st century. In fact, my guest, Eric Weiner, argues that it matters a lot. In fact, he thinks it matters more than ever. After all, why is it that places like Athens or Florence or Virginia and Philadelphia in 1776 and Silicon Valley today have produced some of the crowning achievements of mankind? Maybe it's because, as Eric Weiner says, place matters. Eric Weiner is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Geography of Bliss, as well as the critically acclaimed Man Seeks God. His work has appeared in the New Republic, Slate, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, and Foreign Policy, and it is my pleasure to welcome him back to the program today to talk about his newest work, The Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places, from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. Eric Weiner, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. First of all, talk a little bit about how you set about on this journey. The idea that is, if we look at the world, as, as I mentioned in the introduction, places like Florence, Silicon Valley today, some of the great transitional places in the world, they did develop in clusters. Talk a little bit about how you began looking at this in, in your journey to define this. Well, I started with the map, really, the historic map of the world. And uh, as you say, you, you look at it and and you don't see, you know, random occurrences of genius. You don't see one popping up in in uh, Bolivia, one in Siberia, and you know, one in Napa. Uh, you okay. see, you see clusters uh, in certain places at certain times. They don't last very long, uh, but they're there and and they shine bright. And I thought that just can't be a coincidence. You know, there must have been something in the water, as they say. What I set out to do in this book is to try to figure out what it is and to see if we can bottle it, um, you know, to see if we can learn practical lessons for our lives today. So, you know, it's a it's a journey. It's a fun journey. It's a I'd like to think it's an intellectual adventure, um, but it's also a somewhat selfish endeavor in that I'm looking for lessons to take away for myself and for, you know, raising my 11 year old daughter and trying to create an atmosphere at home. That's, you know, not exactly Renaissance Florence, but uh, a creative atmosphere. To what extent do you think that this came about because these were dense population centers that had brought together a critical mass of people in a way that, that allowed these kind of geniuses to flourish in a more intellectual urban environment, whatever that urban landscape might have been? Well, you put your finger on, on one thing that's very crucial, and that is the vast majority of these places were cities. They were not small villages or out in the countryside. One exception, perhaps, is Silicon Valley today. But other than that, almost every genius cluster throughout history has been a city. And you're right, a fairly densely populated city. Um, and and the, the density theory, if you want to call it that, has is, been out there for a while. And I think there's some truth to it, you know, just if you, if you think of people as molecules bouncing around and, and the more people there are, smart, innovative people bouncing around, the more likely they are to combine with others in a sort of molecular way. That's definitely true. 
But there's one problem, I think, with that density theory, and that is that, you know, other settings are dense, prisons are dense, slums are dense, and they uh, do not produce much in the way of genius. So why is that? And I think the missing ingredient uh, is intimacy and trust uh, and the resources, of course, to, to pursue genius. Uh, so I think density is, as they say, uh, necessary but not sufficient. You need a few other ingredients as well. How similar is it to the way we might look at genetics, for example, that, that we have a predisposition in our genes to certain diseases or certain developmental aspects of our lives, and it has to be a particular set of environmental circumstances that yeah. allow the expression of those genes? That's a, a very good question, and I think a very good way of thinking about this subject. Uh, because, you know, when I make my case, uh, and I am an admitted, confessed placist, I believe in place as, as determining our lives in profound ways, I don't mean to diminish the importance of genetics. And I think you're absolutely right that we're all born with a menu of potentialities. Let's put it that way. Uh, we know we, we might we tend to think, oh, I'm not musical because I must not have it genetically. Well, maybe those genes or those clusters of genes inside of you haven't been activated. I do believe that there's something about environment that from the beginning at a young age activates certain genes and certain abilities in people. And likewise, I think we can get into a sort of self-defeating mode where, you know, by age 15, if we haven't shown any musical talent, we assume, well, we just don't have it. We weren't born with it, and I don't think that's the case. When we look at those cities, is it more than just the, the density issue that you were talking about? Is it also, and this kind of relates to the genetics in, in a funny kind of way, is it that the people that gather in cities are often people that have come there from, from distant places, from more rural places, and that had within them the kind of spirit, the kind of ad adventurous nature to take them away from home to bring them to some place like Athens or Silicon Valley? Well, you've put your finger, Jeff, on another important ingredient here, and that is uh, these places are open. You know, they're not the Pyongyang and you know, North Korea's of the world. They, they have an openness. Uh, they do attract a large number of immigrants, and they tend to have a fairly liberal in immigration policy. They're, they're magnets, uh, and they attract a certain type of person. But that's not fully satisfying of an explanation in my mind, because why did Florence become magnetized and uh, more so than, say, Milan or Pisa or Siena or some of the other Italian city-states at the time? Why did Silicon Valley become magnetized? There are certain circumstances that make that happen, uh, not fully understood, I have to be honest, but they, they, there is something that magnetizes the place in the first place and then attracts these adventurous, open-minded people that you just described. To what extent does it have to do with the culture of place, the, the sort of inherent underlying culture of a particular place, and the history of that place? Well, it's all culture, frankly. I mean, when I talk about geography, uh, you know, I do address uh, topography and climate, um, but I, I dismiss those fairly early on because 
whether it's Athens, which has sunshine 300 days out of the year, or it's Elizabethan England, which doesn't have much sunshine at all, you've seen genius sprout in both places. So I don't think you know, that kind of geography or topography meteorology explains it. It's culture. Um, and, you know, when you get a bunch of human beings together, whether it's in a place, you could argue even if it's online, a culture develops, and cultures have certain attributes. And some are good at producing wealth, others not so much. Some cultures are good at producing happiness, others not so much. And some cultures are good at producing creative genius more than others. And what is the nexus then, if there is one, between the culture and the physical environment, whether it's the drabness of Edinburgh or, or mm. you know, the brightness of Athens? Good question. Uh, I think the, that all of these places I looked at, all of these golden ages, started with a certain deficit. Um, in the case of Athens, uh, you know, it, it, it was arid land, barren land that, you know, was not very fertile at all. Uh, in the case of Renaissance Florence, uh, a malarial city uh, with no port, uh, and had just been decimated by the Black Death, the bubonic plague. Uh, so actually, you know, they're not, they tend not to be places that are rich in resources and abundant. Um, look at all the oil in, in the Persian Gulf and in, in countries like Saudi Arabia. Are they places of genius? No, they, they suffer what's sometimes called the, the, the curse of oil or the resource curse. Um, so um, actually having some constraints um, is, is important, actually, something to push against. The deficit idea leads to this notion of, of suffering, I suppose. I mean, it's a notion that we can take out of agriculture or, you know, sitting here in, in Napa. You know, the old story that the, the vines have to suffer in order to produce their best product. Is there an element of that in these places? Hmm. I mean, a little bit of suffering, yes. Too much suffering can be debilitating. And uh, it's it, it, like so many... So much of this, it's about finding the sweet spot, finding the sweet spot between openness and discernment, finding the sweet spot between having working against constraints and not suffering to the extent that you don't produce anything. You know, there's been a pretty well-known link between mental illness, even depression and creativity, but the greatest artists tend not to produce when they're really in the throes of a deep depression. Um, they they produce when uh, when they've lifted, the fog has lifted a bit. And the same with suffering, I'd say. Talk about this in the context of our 21st century world, where you can be any place to do anything and have meetings and be interconnected, and, and just the framework of globalization and its impact on how you see this. Well, I mean, some might ask, and some have asked me, you know, is Silicon Valley the last place? Is, is the geographies of genius dead, you know, because now we have digital technology, as you say, we can be anywhere, do anything from anywhere, um, except that the people who are selling us this vision of a placeless future, many of them tend to live in one place, not too far from you in Silicon Valley. So why would that be? Why is there a Silicon Valley that continues to thrive today? Why, why aren't they dispersed around the world? So I do think technology makes geography matter a bit less, but not that much less. I think place uh, still matters. People are still going to gravitate to certain places. Places get magnetized. You can even argue that 
the technology that Silicon Valley has spawned and spewed around the world acts almost like breadcrumbs leaving, leading to the promised land. If you're a young Indian or Chinese student and you want to make it big and you have an iPhone, you don't want to just work remotely uh, with some firm in Silicon Valley. You want to go there. You want to physically be there. Which really raises this question of, of where people work versus where they live. And Silicon Valley and, and the Bay Area provides an interesting dichotomy to what has been, his, I think, what has been historically the case. You know, we're, we're all familiar with and we all think about people living in suburbs and commuting into cities to work. In Silicon Valley, we're seeing something that is precisely the opposite. We're seeing young people clustering and, and desperate to live in San Francisco and then taking buses and mass transportation out to work in the suburbs of Silicon Valley, which is counter to everything that we've seen historically. It is. It is. And as I said, Silicon Valley is the outlier because it developed in, you know, orchards that were really uh, actually more than suburban. They were they were pretty rural or certainly exurban you know, back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, when the when the region was just developing. And you're right, it is strange to see uh, people, young people, reverse commuting like that. Uh, you certainly would think that, that Silicon Valley would have been born right in the, the mission district of, mm-hmm. of San Francisco and not, you know, out in the peninsula. So uh, I don't have a, a full explanation for that other than, California is an odd place, and and I think it's no coincidence, and I say that in the best possible term, and it's no coincidence that I think that this explosion of innovative innovation and technology started on the West Coast um, because they had distance. Um, you know, it mattered a century ago even more that you were all the way out in San Francisco. You had some distance from the East Coast establishment. And the people at Stanford, people like Fred Terman, who is considered the father of Silicon Valley, they had a pretty big chip on their shoulder. They wanted to prove those East Coast snobs wrong, that people in California were every bit as smart and every bit as creative, and they worked twice as hard. There also seems to be, and, and maybe in looking at all of these, you, you, it's, it's perhaps different, but there, on the surface at least, there seems to be a coastal bias to all of this. Well, I mean, water has always been part of civilizations and cities, and, and Florence, as I said, has no port, but it is on a river. Uh, Athens has the port of Piraeus that's you know very close by. That is essentially its port city. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. You're right. Edinburgh's not too far from the water. Uh, yeah, I mean, water is life. Water has been life, uh, and water is is always nearby. And I guess it it comes down to that openness. You are more likely to be exposed to new ideas if you're living on a coast because of the trade and the travel that's going to take place. And it's been shown that when we have these extracultural influxes, they're called, fancy term for cross-pollination with the rest of the world, with other places, you're right, that's more likely to, to happen in the coastal city. Mm-hmm. To what extent is it also part of, and we've sort of touched on this inside some of these other ideas, this, this whole idea of people bumping into each other, of ideas and individuals bumping into each other, much like an exaggerated college campus? Yeah, I mean, serendipity matters too. But as Louis Pasteur says, chance favors a prepared mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, bumping into people randomly, 
is important. Um, but you need to have a space where that occurs. And, you know, I was just thinking of Edinburgh again as an example where you had people from different strata of society living cheek by jowl in the old city of Edinburgh, sometimes even in the same building. So there, this constant, this constant, this, this, there is this constant discourse among people with different viewpoints and from different socioeconomic strata, and I think that's tremendously important. There's also this nexus between sense of place and sense of environment, and Silicon Valley is perhaps a, a real strong example of it right now. In, in all the effort and thought that goes into what the work environment is, as if that's somehow going to help sprout genius. And I think it's smart to pay attention to it. I'm just not sure, frankly, whether the Silicon Valley firms are approaching this in the right way. And what I mean by that is there's this tendency now, especially that they've achieved a degree of success, to put it mildly, to remove all constraints, to give their workers everything they need to be creative. So they don't have to do their laundry. Someone does it for them on site. They don't have to worry about buying food or cooking food. Um, they have beanbag chairs and everything. But as I said, creativity requires constraints to some extent, something to push against. And don't forget that some of our best creative thinking might come while doing the dishes or doing the laundry, uh, when we're incubating, as the psychologists say, not actively consciously thinking. And so I, I question some of these perks that they're handing out. Uh, some of them are good, like allowing people to have walking meetings. I think that's very good because walking has been shown to induce creativity and, and boost it. Um, but some of these other perks that that sort of seem to say, don't worry about day-to-day -day life, just focus on your work, I think that might prove to be counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about some of these clusters, and, and this is a really more modern concept, the degree to which they sort of spread and, and, and replicate themselves, almost like cancer cells. We see urban areas that grow and grow and grow, and, and the impact that has on place and the impact that it has on creativity, perhaps. You mean on one uh, one city that, that grows enormously? Right. I mean, uh, the, yeah. the idea of these giant kind of megalopolises, the Megalop stuff that Richard well, Florida talks about on the East Coast, for example. Yeah, I mean... I've seen, looking historically, I found many genius clusters that were, that were quite small, such as Edinburgh and Florence and Athens, small by the standards of their day, certainly small by the standards of our day, the great Athens, and the population equivalent to that of Wichita, Kansas today. A few other places, you know, like London and, uh, and, and Vienna in 1900, were, were quite large, but I think they remained intimate. Again, my concern is when the megalopolis loses its intimacy and uh, people are, you know, and I've seen this certainly in Southern California, people are, are unable to interact with each other simply because if you live in Glendale and your friend lives in Venice Beach, you're, you're not going to see each other. Um, that's probably true of the Bay Area as well. Uh, the distances are so great and the traffic is so bad, so you're reducing the number of interactions and that's a bad thing from a creativity point of view. What about looking at clusters within clusters? If we take, you know, New York, for example, we see, you know, Madison Avenue, we see Wall Street, Silicon Alley. I mean, we can, we can find clusters within clusters. We can, but they're not fully isolated from one another. Uh, you know, one thing about creativity is it's contagious. 
So just because you're working on Wall Street or working on Madison Avenue in New York, you may think, well, I've got nothing to do with that writer in Brooklyn or that artist in, in Queens. But, but that's not true. Once creativity is in the air, it, it does have this contagion effect. Again, we saw it in Vienna in 1900 and in Paris probably in the 1920s where you had artists and writers and others mm-hmm. coming together. And what, what, what happens, I think, is people see breaks in the field, uh, in other people's fields. And they think, even if they're not thinking it fully consciously, well, what about my field? Maybe there's a leap I can make as well. It's almost like you've been given permission to make the leap. It's interesting to see the impact that things like gentrification are having on this. Yeah, and again, that speaks to the problem of trying to make a place too nice. And there's some urbanists who believe the way to attract the so-called creative class is by really making your city nice and making it interesting with theater and with ethnic restaurants and that sort of thing. But those are the products of a successful creative economy. They're not necessarily the producers of one. I mean, think about the artists who are always one step ahead of gentrification, moving from Manhattan to Brooklyn, and now I suppose Brooklyn to Queens. Um, Because not only is it, I guess a lot of it is, they can't afford the rent anymore, and places have have lost their their edge. Gentrification is not necessarily conducive to creativity. Because there's a sense that there's almost a textbook for this, that if you create a neighborhood and you bring in the right kind of restaurants and the right kind of retail and the right kind of this or that, that it is somehow going to feed creativity. Yes, and I I don't think that's true. I I think that's a fallacy. Uh, It may work in a few isolated cases, but for the most part, I think these things happen much more organically than that. I think it's very difficult to create a genius cluster. I think you can do certain things that might make it more likely, but I don't think you can manufacture the next Silicon Valley. Look, it's been tried dozens, if not hundreds of times, and without exception, these these efforts have, have failed. It's interesting to look around the country and see the places, the states, the communities that have tried to, to really manufacture that, whether it's Austin, Texas, or places in North Carolina. I mean, there have been real efforts to try and recreate some of this. Yeah, and I think the problem is the word recreate. I think you, you need to create and not recreate. Uh, you cannot recreate a culture. You cannot transplant a culture. And Silicon Valley is first and foremost a culture. It has very little to do with technology. I mean, the products are technology, but the process is not. It's a culture. And to try to transplant that wholesale somewhere else is not going to work. Having said that, I hope readers will take away from my book some lessons and and also just change the way they tend to think about creativity in their own lives as well. It's not just a what or how or who, it's also a where. Eric Weiner, the book is The Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. Eric, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks, Jeff. I really enjoyed this. Thank you.